I can't meet the requirements of your debt to income ratio because prices of homes have come up too much. I can't qualify for mortgage. When Andrew, when you invested into Easy Knock, as you alluded to in 2019, the amount of people that did not qualify for a mortgage in the United States was 30%. That number today is 70% of the housing market. So the only choice wow. for someone today, if they want to get the equity out of their home and they want to they want to extract it, is to sell their home. Guess what? Inventory is the lowest it's been since 1993. So you don't even have that choice anymore. So they can come to our, our, our platform and they could say, do I want to, am I comfortable giving up title to my home? That's a sale lease back. You become a renter of your own home. You sell the house to easy knock, you become a renter and you could buy it back and we'll give you all the appreciation. Another product that we're going to be launching. And by the way, Hello and welcome to Fireside with the VC. My name is Andrew Romans and we are here with Jared Kessler, who's the CEO of EasyNock. Jared, great to see you. Great to see you, Andrew. Thanks for uh, having me on the podcast today. Very excited to be here. Yeah, so EasyNock, uh, we've been with you guys since April of two, 2019 was our first investment. We've been lucky to invest a couple of times. Just to set the stage, EasyNock is a fintech, real estate, property tech company headquartered in New York City. Jared, as the founder and CEO, has raised over $120 million of equity funding and also well over $600 million of debt financing, which is a key part of the business. So there's a lot of things we can get into with lessons learned from fundraising, the difference between debt and equity when it kind of never stops, uh, product velocity, management of teams growing, getting trimmed with ups and downs of the economy. But Jared, why don't you first explain to us, what does EasyNock do? What is the company? Sure. So if you asked me the question two years ago, Andrew, I would say that we focus on uh, equity release and sale lease back to residential homeowners. And what we've, what, what we're morphing into, and this is like, you know, there's sometimes when you have evolutions to your business and then you have 1.0, 2.0 and 3.0. We're for the first time at our company creating EasyNock 2.0 because we believe there's like no single platform offering access to liquidity solutions throughout the entire residential homeowner spectrum where the needs are buying, selling, and owning. So it's basically going to be a central platform that connects residential homeowners, buyers, and those sellers with the access to products that are both non-lending products and partnering, we don't want to be a lender, lending products, and then building services around them of wherever they are in their life cycle. So we're filling the white spaces of residential real estate. So if you think about, everyone always loves a good comparison. If you think about what SoFi did as a platform for financial services, you could think about EasyNock is almost striving to do some sort of version of that in residential real estate. And specifically though, just like, um, I'm sure we lost somebody in there. It, like, like, so I own a house in Austin, Texas. Sure. And I'm having trouble making payments or I need to buy another house for some reason. Sure. I, I need some cash into the thing. What are what are like an example of like your launching flagship product or some of the other products that you can sure. offer? And we're talking that, you know, easy knock to the homeowner, right? Sure. Yeah. So so in about a month from now, someone can come to Easy Knock and and we already have this product today, but let's say 30 days from now, someone comes to Easy Knock and they say, you know what? Um, 
I can't meet the requirements of your debt to income ratio because prices of homes have come up too much. I can't qualify for mortgage. When Andrew, when you invested into Easy Knock, as you alluded to in 2019, the amount of people that did not qualify for a mortgage in the United States was 30%. That number today is 70% of the housing market. So the only choice wow. for someone today, if they want to get the equity out of their home and they want to they want to extract it, is to sell their home. Guess what? Inventory is the lowest it's been since 1993. So you don't even have that choice anymore. So they can come to our, our, our platform and they can say, do I want to, am I comfortable giving up title to my home? That's a sale lease back. You become a renter of your own home. You sell the house to easy knock, you become a renter and you could buy it back and we'll give you all the appreciation. Another product that we're going to be launching. And by the way, slow down. I think that's just so important. So, so in reality, if someone is dealing with interest rates, their mortgage rate went up, maybe, you know, even they're part of a layoff. If they're having trouble, whatever, kids going to college of meeting their mortgage payments, rather than just sell the company, sell the, sell the house in a fire sale, one option is to go to Easy Knock and say, we're going to sell the house to you and we're going to stay in the house, renting it back. But if the house is sold a year from now, when we move, we get the delta of the appreciation. Do I have that right? So the way it works for Easy Knock is if someone has, a, I'll use a real life example. Andrew has a house worth $100,000. The way it works for us is we will give you up to 75% in cash. And then we give you a piece of paper, which is a moving target that says you can buy it back for the cash we give you plus a small fee. That small fee is, uh, is where we make money on the back end. Or they can go out in the open market and sell the home. And let's say that $100,000 house sells for $200,000. The customer, not easy knock, would receive 200 minus 75, which is the cash we gave them. So we give them all the appreciation. We take a fixed fee on the back end. We take a fixed fee on the front end of 5%. And then we charge rent, which is the where we make the majority of our money. People always say it must be too good to be true because they haven't figured out that we're making money off of rent. That's where we're making most of our money. Right, right. It's almost like the venture debt guys that are the banks. They've got they make the money on the deposit, so they can offer lower interest rates. It's pretty interesting. I wanted to bring that out in that granular example because when people hear like lease back, it almost makes it sound like rough. And I think it's pretty crazy that you could be living in like Nashville, Orlando, Austin, where property prices are doubling, and you go from being an owner, get out of a pinch, renting, and actually capture the appreciation of a property while you're renting it. Now, granted, you guys are not a charity and the revenue has been growing at Easy Knock quite a bit. So, but as a percentage of revenue mix, I mean, maybe you don't want to disclose that. What do you, and it changes as it just gets to more and more and more houses. But what's kind of a revenue mix breakdown for you on, say, those fees versus, uh, you know, being, you know, the rent? So the rent, uh, the more deals we do in a single month, the processing fees become a bigger percentage. So on average, right. I would say it's about about 70, 30 rent versus fees um, are, are sort of the breakdown. But as you as you scale more, that could be 50, 50. It could be the other way, you know, 30, 70. Uh, but today that's kind of the breakdown in the way we make money. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been happy to to watch that you guys kind of joyfully have some fees when you bring somebody on, which is good for a payback period of what it costs, kind of a CAC to LTV of cash management, yeah. have something that's ongoing, and then a joyful hit of revenue on the back end, 
which could be substantial, which is interesting. So how does, and you guys have a number of different solutions. I mean, maybe talk about, you know, it's very difficult to time, especially right now in this kind of wonky housing market where inventory is so low. If being having the flexibility to get cash, be able to buy a house for cash. When I lived in the Bay Area, if you didn't walk in with a suitcase full of cash, it was pretty hard to win that house where people were paying above market. What are some of the other kind of quick products that you guys offer? Yeah, so we have a product called Movability, which is rent your own home. It's a, it's a one-year sale lease back, but it's designed as a non-lending bridge product because you rent your home. You don't have the timing issue of having to put your stuff in storage because you're in your home till you move to the next home. Your contingency issue is eliminated. Now you have cash for your future home. We also have a product that does what you just talked about, the example you gave, a cash offer. So we purchased in May a company called Ribbon, which basically backstops a cash offer. So in a market that we were in about a year and a half ago where it was insanely competitive, a cash offer helps you win the sale. Conversely, in a market where there's no inventory, it's highly competitive too because there's no inventory, so cash offer works. The issue is there's much less uh, volume, but that our business is like in in sort of challenging times, our leaseback business is more popular and our cash offer is less popular, but you also could take the products together, movability and the ribbon product and create a buy before you sell product, which is exactly what we're doing. So it's another example. We have a product where you could buy down the rate using the sale at leaseback called buy boost. And then we announced last month, we acquired a company called Onder that does property management for homeowners. So if your parents, you don't want to deal with their issues, if they own their home and you want someone to property management on other than yourself, that we're, we're going to be, we want to be the first company in the country to nationally have property management for homeowners. So we want, that's what we meant by when we talked about buying, selling and services, that's a service we want to wrap around our business. Right, right. I mean, there's a whole kind of ecosystem of things once you've got that relationship. And even if you look at the numbers, if you have some companies, some startups in startup land, they're doing one thing. You guys become like that Disney spoke wheel that, you know, the movie, you know, funds the amusement park and the amusement park funds the merchandise and it kind of spins around in the old days of buying DVDs. So there's a lot happening with a relationship, someone who buys and sells homes maybe multiple times there, which is interesting. Jared, explain the the prop tip, prop, the the opco, propco um configuration. It's not unique to you guys, right? So you're raising equity financing and you're raising debt financing and you're buying these houses. Yeah. And housing prices can theoretically go down as much as they, you know, you like to think of them as always going up. But explain the opco propco configuration. Yeah. So uh, for someone that's never heard it before, I'll try to make it super simple so it's easy to understand, which is imagine we were sitting in the middle as an agent and we weren't taking any risk and we were connecting investors directly with people that want to sell their home. And we just had an agency platform. We wouldn't need a prop co because we would just need a marketing department. We need technology. We need a nice website. And that would be it, right? We're, we have a platform. When you introduce principal in a principal balance sheet. So when people talk about Propco, the way I always try to not confuse them is I'd say, are you looking for equity dollars or are you looking for balance sheet? Balance sheet is sometimes debt and mes 
or equity to buy the property. So some of it could be senior debt and some companies have to put in some equity into deals. Easy Knock uses 100% debt today. That might change in the future. We have we work with banks, we work, work with private lenders and our rent, for, like one example, our rent for sale leasebacks services the debt every month and the delta between what we charge the customer and what we have to actually pay in our debt is a, is one of the places we make money on rent, but also um, so so that's the operating company. Now, an opportunity is over time you can create a fund around the prop go, you can create a read around the prop go, you can continue to partner with people, you could do a securitization. The the most important thing is you have to have people at a company that have had the experience doing this before. And what I found fascinating over the last seven years, this is this week's our seven year anniversary, over the last seven years of this business, the amount of uh, people that invest with folks that have never handled a balance sheet started the business. It's it's like it's like having a cardiologist that's never done uh, open heart surgery before. Would you let them operate on your heart? Would you give people money that have not, not had experience before? Maybe, but you know, you're risking getting a heart attack. Right, and so, Talk about the dynamics. Um, I mean, it was a whole different economy when we first met and got started working with you. Seven years, you guys have covered a lot of ground in that period of time. But man, we went from kind of zero interest rates to, you know, you know, you can really feel it. How does and then also inflation? Inflation was a really big deal. How how have these things impacted your business? You kind of already talked about how there's you know products that hedge each other, but. What is the influence of interest rates going up on your business? How does that impact your business? Well, there's there's two questions that we kind of talked about here. How has interest rate impacted our business? And what have we kind of seen over the last seven years in this volatile times between, I guess you're alluding to COVID, 40-year interest rates, all these things navigating it. So on the interest rate side, um, there was last Friday, I saw on send me a link to some pretty well-followed person on Twitter. Can't remember the person's name. But what he said was at 3% mortgage rates, right? Which where we were like, what, a year and a half ago, maybe even less, uh, 50 million people uh, in the $400,000 tier of mortgages qualify for mortgage. Today at 8%, 22 million people qualify for mortgage. Mm. So the higher interest rates go, Every time they go up a point, it's like, you know, 20 million people get shut out of the mortgage market. So that number could be, if it keeps going up, like 90% of the people shut out. So it increases our addressable market. Because we borrow money too, we're not insulated from being impacted by it, but it's, so our margins will go down, but we'll make up with that in volume. And also the other thing it does is it puts our competitors at a significant disadvantage because most of these companies are at the mercy of transaction volume and we're creating transaction volume. We're not dependent on houses being sold in a given year. We're looking at how much equity is trapped in people's homes and how many people are going to need it. And we're at a tipping point right now. You know, Andrew, I, I, I've been saying this recently to a lot of people, but I'll ask you this question. Have you been to a restaurant in the last month? Of course. Have you looked around a restaurant and said to your wife or your friends, how the hell is everyone afford when you get your bill and it's $400 oh. or $300, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, 2X, whatever you were paying a year ago, 
You say, yeah. how are people affording that? How do people afford it? The answer is they're not. That's why credit card debt is at an all-time high. That's why car payments are being laid are at an all-time high. We are, in my opinion, we are getting ready for a pretty significant downturn in the market. And people have been hanging out on by a thread between card, credit card debt, the uh, the Trump and Biden administration giving government subsidies after COVID. It's, it's all that right now. And we're out of bullets because if you keep giving money, inflation goes up. So we're stuck right now in a pretty precarious situation, in my opinion. And what has the impact of inflation been on your business? So if you here's a stat to answer that question. 70% of the of the US economy households can't deal with an unexpected bill of $400 or more. So mm -hmm. if you have 70% of the people that can't, and you have 80% in, uh, appreciation in people's homes in the United States, so they've created equity. You're not supposed to take that out when interest rates are, are rising. So it just makes our product insanely valuable to people because there's new map found money. They should be getting uh, equity out. They just haven't had a path. So what it's done for us, it's the inflation has created a sense of urgency of like the average person having, I'm making this up, like a sense of urgency of seven out of 10 to like 9.5 out of 10 for someone making 70% of the country. Because guess what? Everyone in this country has had an unexpected bill of $400 through inflation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I, I, the, I ran up a lot of credit card debt when I was an MBA and I was using that to fund a startup. And I had like a spreadsheet of how I was moving money from one credit card, getting a free ticket here, you know, zero balance for whatever. But that that all went away when I raised funding for my company. Yeah. I just can't even understand how someone would carry credit card debt. It just makes no sense to me. And if the interest rates on those were already crazy, I can't imagine someone going to a restaurant knowing that the interest on that credit card balance is going up. It just seems crazy to me. If your house has doubled in value since COVID, you know, it makes sense to get some cash out of it. So talk a little bit about lessons learned on fundraising. If there's any advice you can share with other entrepreneurs, I mean, how the hell did you raise $120 million? It sounds like a truckload plus a trainload of cash. Yeah. So a few things. Number one is you got to kiss a ton of frogs. Like the, the the people that give you advice to narrow down your target market to like five or 10 people, I completely think that's that's not what I would advise people to do. There's just, it's too hard in this market. And there's someone out there that you're going to, that you're going to resonate with. And it's going to take a lot of frog kissing to get there. The second thing I would say is the markets are pretty efficient. So if you consistently hear the same feedback and you don't tweak your business model to respond to the market, you're eventually going to lose because I believe the markets are efficient. So if someone says, you know, um, you don't have enough scale where I think you're too direct to consumer driven or I'm worried about your regulatory environment, create a white paper on the regulatory environment, figure out a way that you can convince people that you may not have scale today, but you're going to have scale and be creative about it. Right. In the last year, we've used debt, we used acquisitions and we've gone to unconventional paths to raise money. We've gone to celebrity family offices. We've gone overseas to the Middle East. We've gone to Asia. So we're, we're, we just don't follow the same playbook because the last time consensus was right, I, I, I think was probably never. So go, I, I would mm -hmm. say don't follow the conventional wisdom. 
Yeah. Okay. Good advice from a guy who's been raising consistently in up and down markets. What about raising debt? How is that different? I mean, how is that completely different from, you know, raising VC funding? So this 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 will make hopefully some people smile, laugh on it. When you talk to an equity investor, they want to know the story, the origin story. They want to know who you are. When you whenever you talk to a debt investor, they don't give a crap about that. They want the spreadsheet <laughs> and they want the numbers. That's all they want. It's all about fundamentals. So that's the major difference. Is does the math work to meet their risk tolerance? Do they feel the regulatory environment? If you're blazing a new trail, is safe because the person there, the only thing they want to avoid is not getting fired, right? And they want consensus and they want buy-in. And honestly, those no one really says that, but those are the two things. They have to feel that you know what you're talking about, that you're going to have enough traction. So it, to to in order to burn enough calories, it's got to actually make sense to you. And if you haven't made that traction yet, the question might be, then what do you do? You're going to have to pay higher and not be stubborn about it, and then work your way down. Because the bigger you get, the more leverage you get to cycle down your cost to capital. Yeah, 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 I can see that. Um, I know you don't disclose like the number of properties that you guys own now, but can you give us some sort of ballpark and how that's, you know, turning, morphing the company into an easy knock 3.0 when you become such a big... Yeah. You know, I mean, like mortgage-backed securities make sense. You know, if you lend money to one old lady and she defaults, that's going to really be tough on you if you had one tenant. If you, you know, synthesize together thousands and thousands and thousands of mortgages, it becomes an asset class. Yeah. Um, Easy Knock's now the 15th biggest owner in the country. Just to give people some context, there's only 30 companies that I know of in the U.S. that own more than 1,000 homes. It's still a very early stage. Most of the homes in the in the in the asset class are people that own less than five homes. It's like the mom and pop landlords. Interesting. So, so you guys are the fifteenth largest owner of, of residential properties in the in the country right now. Single family, uh, not obviously single single family. Own, if you go to multifamily, like people own gazillions of homes, right? Because it's like you know yeah. building. And you know, you see, you know. If whenever we talk to family offices that own that are RLPs that own commercial real estate, it's pretty much all of them. And you hear about people are just saying, look, take the keys. If you know your vacancy rate, you know, in these towers in San Francisco is like 70%. It just doesn't work. And I thought they could just like get in with the mayor and say, we're gonna, we're gonna make this commercial empty real estate building residential. But people tend to say it costs more money to actually refurbish these, you know, office spaces into residential than it would cost to just do something completely new. And they end up just throwing the keys away. How, how is this like commercial real estate kind of asteroid or, you know, meteor that's heading this way? How does that impact your business, if, if at all? Because aren't you dealing with people that that have money in commercial real estate? Yes, it definitely has a contagion effect. Uh, but I would say that's going to happen pretty much in any sector in the market. Like residential, the I would say is a little closer because some people that do, you know, asset-based, you know, investments, they're multi-strat. So like if they're getting destroyed in one area, look, I think a lot of it has been accepted in the market. And you're right, Andrew, like between regulatory, 
Like this country, in my opinion, is out of control with like the red tape. If we wanted to get that done, the zillions of dollars it, it would cost. Right, that is true. Right, that's what people say. You know, like I was watching, it. I was watching. Uh, well, oh, I was I saw on one of the, a show on HBO the other day. I think it was Bill Maher. He was talking about there was a bathroom in San Francisco that they wanted to build a public bathroom, and it cost one point seven million dollars to build one two person bathroom. And that's the problem is it's really, really hard from a, like permits and regulatory side. The other problem is a lot of these buildings, like I'm in New York, if you go to Avenue Americas, those are all B buildings that are probably going to be vacated soon. So we think with what's going on with the city and there's a need for housing and all that, just, you know, and you, everyone's read about what's happening with the immigration um, topic going on right now, that maybe that would be a good place to, to house some of the, the, uh, the migrants coming in. And the issue is there's asbestos in a lot of these buildings because they're such old buildings. And if you knock, you, you have to knock down these buildings. So the impact of the commercial market definitely is making me nervous, both as a consumer, but also as a residential investor, because it's a little bit of baby with the bathwater. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see a graveyard of companies that are exposed to the commercial market. And by the way, on the residential side, you're going to see that as well, too. We believe because we're counter cyclical. We're the we have the opposite problem right now. People, there it's it's like what you learn in college: supply and demand. The amount of supply. Just walk into any office building in New York City, and you'll see what the supply issue is. If you go, if you if you take a drive forty five minutes to Nassau County in Long Island, you can't find a home right now. It's like it's literally night and day. Right, 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 right. My uh, my uncle, my my I have an aunt in East Hampton. You know this. Um, she works for Christie's and Sotheby's and when COVID hit, you guys were out there and um, so was everybody else. And then people say, it's hard to get them back into a house with one oven in the kitchen and nowhere for the kids. So it's Long Island went nuts. Um, talk about product velocity. I'm always impressed when I get your reports about like all these things you're doing at the product level and managing these different teams while while running the finance of the business and strategy. Um, are there any lessons learned on how you've you know multitasked and keep your keep your head down on all these different technology initiatives at the same time? Yeah, look, I, again, this is this is like the typical playbook that I think most companies follow because they read it in some business book. Um, I think people overthink things way too much. It's, you know, sometimes you need quantitative analysis. Sometimes you need qualitative analysis. Sometimes, you know, you're using using your gut. And I think here, what we do a little bit differently is sometimes we just look at the data so we say to ourselves, if I'll give you one example, um, we were having a conversation uh, with with my co-founder Ben, who start you know we started Easynock together, and he 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 gave me an idea like, and this is in the last three or four months, and uh, Ben mentioned to me that he thinks there's a big opportunity for rate buy downs because you can actually buy down your rate. The issue is if you can't sell your home. You don't have money to buy down your rate and where equity is. So he said, what about using the sale leaseback to do that? And I'm like, that's a great idea. And I'm like, let's just take our sale leaseback product and position it to mortgage companies that we can originate and create more business with them. And we'll throw in a credit counselor too if FICO is an issue for them. So, so that's how we created Buy Boost. I didn't come up with the idea, but someone had a great idea, happened to be my co-founder, Ben. And I thought it was a great idea. And I'm like, we're doing it. And I didn't need to do all this analysis on it because I spoke to five mortgage companies, three of them being the two, three of the biggest in the country. And they're like, yeah, we need this. You know what? If it doesn't work, 
you know, it costs us time and that sucks and time is very valuable at a startup. But I think a lot of people like to take the, like, let's take the next six months, let's do market intelligence, let's do surveys and blah, 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 blah. And sometimes the way you ask questions get you the wrong answer. And sometimes you just got to go in the market and just do it. Yeah, sometimes you just got to make decisions, um, even if 80% of them are bad when you're, you know, facing other than running out of cash. Yeah, the uh, we've got a portfolio company where they sell an equity share in the business and they managed to figure out that the solar panel salespeople standing in Costco's and, you know, wherever um, started offering their service to be able to pay for the solar panels. So when you described that one, I love the idea that you've got a bunch of highly motivated brokers hoping to close a transaction that can bring you in and that becomes a distribution. And, you know, it's an, it's a win, win, win. How about, how about growing team? What percentage, what percentage of employees at this point are New York? You guys were born in New York city. You're in New York. We can see it behind you right now. What, what, um, where is headcount? Maybe talk a bit about, you know, scaling the talent, maintaining a culture in a company like easy knock. It's been so challenging, Andrew. I mean, we we were we were awarded one of the best places to work by Inc. Five Thousand because we invest a. Lot. I believe happy employees make good employees. And when you live in a remote world, you know, uh, you know, uh, Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, said last week that he accused. He said that people are not productive at home because they're probably slacking off and taking naps. I never said that. I wouldn't say that. I'm not afraid to say it if I believe it. I actually found myself at times being more productive or not, but I think returning to the office, if you don't return to the office, you're, you're losing that water cooler magic. Now for easy knock, what happened was during the pandemic, it was really hard to find people. And by the way, we can get people's dollar a lot further in places like where there's a lower cost of living, like Alabama and Ohio than in New York. So we made a decision that, and where it ended up is we have people in 31 states and four different countries. In an ideal world, I would love everyone in one place, but that's kind of hard to unwind and you got to do what you need to do to when you're moving fast. And that's what we did. So we hired faster, we moved faster. We understood the consequence of that. So today we have offices in Washington, DC, Washington state and New York city. And uh, we don't need boots on the ground for the homes we're buying. That's just where we have some hubs through acquisitions. And those are in Washington, D.C. and New York are where we have like probably Washington, D.C. after New York, the most employees. But it's been very difficult. But look, the culture at the end of the day is you got to take a really um, active uh, effort to make sure that people feel connected. And even the little things like when you do a video call with the entire company, you make people turn on their video. Right. If you have one of these video calls where everyone's on video, it, you know, it, it kills the connection. We do coffee chats everywhere where people connect. We do uh, a easy knock huddle every two weeks where sometimes it's business related. Sometimes we're talking about like things like what's happening in the Middle East right now. Make sure everyone's OK. Uh, we do an offsite every year, even in the darkest of times like last year when things were bad. I said, we're doing an offsite. I don't care. I sacrifice other stuff because I think human connections are important. We're social, you know, everyone's heard this, right? I don't even need to expand it. No, 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 no. It, it sounds good. I like seeing those photos you send on, on those offsites. Um, getting to the end, what about growth versus profitability? What's your what's your sense on that? And, and like, uh, you know, for, for the VCs that are kind of, you know, with their herd mentality, 
uh, you, you probably laugh when you think about it. Were they all demanding Forex year over year growth? And now they're demanding profitable unit economics. <laughs> what does it look like from your chair there? So I'm going to say something a little controversial and 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 contrarian to most people. My cautionary tale to people is, and I because I advise a bunch of companies, and I see this all the time. They're like, my board is telling me don't worry about growth and worry don't don't worry about growth at all and worry about profitability. The problem is is when the market changes six months later, people tend to have short-term memories and they say, you didn't grow. You were, you were in zombie mode. You were, you know, there was inertia in your business. What happened? And if you say to them, look, we were in cash preservation mode and whatnot. Yeah, some people understand. The people that gave you the advice, half of them will understand, half of them will have amnesia. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's kind of a tough position for people. Now, the world we're in right now is profitability is more important than growth, but it's only because the fundraising environment has gone away where the cash is not going to be there anymore. So it's about survival for people. If you told people they had a window where they can keep taking cash out every six months and they would be diluted, I would say 80% of the people still would do that because it's easier. It's harder to get the profitability. And it's hard to make that turn when you just, when you, when you make that change so quickly. So, you know, we're like everyone else, we were in growth mode and now we're, we're getting to profitability, but we're growing. At, we're, 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 we're running the marathon while we're getting open heart surgery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's also a tale of two cities. If you're, if you raised money at a vulgar, vulgarly high valuation in 2021, you might be thinking of uh, making your money last a bit longer so you can grow into your previous valuation. Whereas if you raise money at a sensible valuation, given where, you know, where the market was and you've managed to continue to grow, you can raise again um, and have it be a nice up round, flat round or minimally down. Whereas for some people, the true valuation they can raise at now is just so bad. And they were spending, they were spending without delivering that they need to discover where the business is, you know? So I think that that's like a different dynamic of what, what we're seeing in the market. Um, well, to, to close out on exit options, um, you know, a lot of recent IPOs are, you know, trading below what they went out at, uh, you know, the total window seems like somewhat shut, um, you know, multiples that you see in the public markets, you know, are maybe a bit more rational than they used to be. How do you guys think about, you know, exit opportunities, you know, ranging from M&A to IPO? Yeah, so- um, And you've just bought some company. You, you've, you've, you've been the consolidator yourself. We have two acquisitions that are in the pipeline. One we're looking to close next week and another one will close by the end of the year, hopefully that will generate cash and revenue for us that's significant. Um, our goal is we believe that when we get to a hundred million dollars of revenue, where we believe our company's worth north of 2 billion, that's probably the right time to think about going public. Uh, one of the things that's awesome about easy knock is we could take the operating company and take that public and spin out that Propco because we talked about it earlier and create right. a, a public read around that. So the investors in easy knock can, can get the benefit of both. But what I do think is going to happen is a lot of these single family companies are looking at the sale leaseback piece of it, like 
Jim's looked at Peloton as like a new asset class, sub asset class. And I think that the more we show that the regulatory environment's great and we're treating people well, and there's a good outcome and we can come out of this cycle successfully and prove to people that, I think it's going to be no different than the way people look at reverse mortgages or HELOCs. It's going to be a staple in the, in the non-lending equity release world. And I think that the home equity agreement space, like shared ownership, that's already getting institutionalized with securitizations. So I think what's going to happen to answer your correctly directly answer question directly is I think mortgage companies are going to want alternative products. So they're going to look to buy a company. They're going to look at a company that has a platform rather than just one feature. We're not one feature anymore. So we'll be attractive target for mortgage companies. Then there's platforms like asset managers, like, you know, folks like, uh, I don't know, like Blackstone, right? Those folks are very interesting, uh, are always, in, they, they did Home Partners of America. They bought it for 3.6 billion 18 months ago for 20 times revenue. That's another one. Then there's the platforms like Zillow or the private wealth advisors. So there's a lot of people that I think would be very interested in our platform. So my point is, Andrew, is do I, is our goal to take the company public? Yes. Do I think we'll ever get there? I'm not so sure because in a good way, I think someone's going to really want to get in the space and they're not going to want to try to build it themselves. Okay. Well, as long as you keep focused on growing your business, I'm sure there'll be a buyer or funder somewhere um, or, or you guys will list. Well, Jared, great to see you. Thanks for making time and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Always, Andrew. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now.